All right, open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter number 5. Revelation chapter number 5. Taking a slight detour this morning from uh, our normal look at the Old Testament when I'm preaching, and really a couple reasons for that. Um, I think for me, like, like for many of you, the last couple of weeks, if we, as we have considered the passion of Jesus Christ, um, those messages have informed my thinking so much and have, have brought me again and again, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week. They keep bringing me back again and again to Jesus Christ. Um, I've been reading in Isaiah about Christ. I've been considering his passion and um, just haven't been able to escape thinking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so when I had the opportunity to preach this morning, I, um, I want to continue that focus. Instead of taking a break and going somewhere else, I want to continue that focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ today. And Revelation chapter 5 is a place my heart keeps coming back to. Uh, in some ways, there might be some similarities preaching from Revelation and preaching from the Old Testament, uh, because it's possible um, that for you, Revelation may be one of the more unfamiliar books uh, of your, at least of your New Testaments, maybe not your Bible. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of similarities between Revelation and our Old Testament. So Revelation is a book of, of narrative, uh, it's story. Uh, so it, it doesn't necessarily state the point um, like we would find in the epistles, but we hear a story and we're supposed to gather the theme that's in the story and, and come to a right conclusion. Uh, the book of Revelation is prophecy, and so that reminds us a lot of the Old Testament where it's full of prophetic books. Um, and Revelation is the prophetic book of the New Testament. But a lot of times, the challenges in the book of Revelation can, um, I think, possibly hinder us from really engaging with the book. Um, maybe that's only true on my end, but maybe you have read Revelation and the, the, uh, the analogies that are there, the pictures that are there, they seem foreign, they seem distant, and you're, you're wondering what exactly is going on here, how does this all, all play out? And that can be a challenge, which is really unfortunate because the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to see Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. And that's my desire this morning as we go to Revelation chapter 5. I know we're just jumping in, uh, several chapters in, uh, but John has been writing this prophecy in order, he's been given this prophecy in order to show Jesus Christ. And so our job today, as we get to Revelation chapter 5, is to understand what's going on here that shows us Jesus Christ. And I think you'll see this one main point all throughout Revelation chapter number 5. Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every created being. Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every created being, and he will have it. He deserves the worship of every created being, and he will have it. Let's read Revelation chapter 5. You heard uh, Mark read some of this, um, but let's read the whole chapter together. Revelation chapter number 5. This is God's word. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, 
each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When we get to Revelation chapter number five, I feel in some senses like we're, we're, walking, we're walking on holy ground because we're actually walking into heaven's throne room. We're actually, we're actually getting a picture of something that has yet to happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's in the future still, but we get a picture of this heavenly worship scene. And the picture that we have in Revelation chapter 5 of this heavenly worship scene, it informs how we think today. Because it informs us that Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every created being. In the first couple of verses, we're going to see um, a setup. We're going, to, we're going to see kind of an introduction that is going to describe the worth of Jesus Christ. And so we need to look at, at the details that are going on in this introduction, the setup that will describe the worth of Jesus Christ. So let's start in verse number 1. John says this, then I saw, um, the then meaning following um, what he had seen in chapter 4 as he, as he saw God on his throne. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. It was written within and on the back and it was sealed with seven seals. All right? Again, I know you're just jumping in this passage, but the details are here to help us. And I think we can, we can get there without having preached through the first, first four chapters of the book. All right? John sees... Um, with his eyes visibly, he sees in the right hand of someone sitting on the throne a scroll, all right? So you have someone sitting on a throne. Who is that sitting on the throne? Well, if you had read chapter 4 or familiar with chapter 4, you'd come to the unavoidable conclusion that that the one on the throne is not Christ, but rather it's God the Father, all right? know that for a couple reasons. One, Jesus is yet to be introduced as the lamb he is. Um, As as well, Revelation chapter number 3 um, John has already talked about the Father on his throne. So Revelation 3.21 discusses the Father who is on his throne. And so you get to chapter, uh, verse number 1 of chapter 5, and he sees something in the right hand um, pictured of God the Father. And, and what he sees is a scroll, all right? And this scroll is crucial to our understanding of chapter 5, and to, it's crucial to our understanding of the worth of Jesus Christ, all right? I don't know if you ever thought that a scroll can really help you think about the worth of Jesus Christ, but this one does. All right, uh, scroll usually made out of some kind of animal skins uh, in, in their day would have been would have been rolled up. He sees this scroll, but there's some unique things about this scroll. This is no ordinary usual scroll. Um, there are several things even in verse number one that let us know that it's unique. One, it says that it's a scroll. It was written within and on the back. All right. No surprise that a scroll would have writing on the inside. And what's a little bit surprising, they would have writing on the back. This was very unusual uh, in their day to have writing on the outside of scrolls. Um, we, we're used to um, books. We're used to printing on both sides of the paper. Uh, you may even have a printer in your house that does double-sided printing. All right, not a whole lot of double-sided printing going on in John's day where you write on both sides of the scroll. Uh, so this is unusual. Uh, and, and I think probably the, the, 
best indication of, of what, what this means uh, is it's talking about the fullness of the scroll. It's talking about the completeness. There's so much here that it's not just bound on the inside. It's actually on the inside and the outside. Um, this, is, this is basically, we'd say it's like a scroll that's bursting at the seams. It's got, it's got so much in it. All right? And uh, interestingly enough, this is not the only time that we read about, about uh, something that's written on, on both sides in the Bible, um, talking about something that's complete and full. In fact, I had one of those moments this week. Um, I have been, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I, I've been a Bible reader for a long time, and I had one of those moments where I read something that I had never read ever before in my Bible. Uh, and so I wanted to share that with you, uh, not just because data is, uh, is nice, but uh, I needed the reminder that sometimes I read my Bible without necessarily thinking. Uh, did you know in the Old Testament there was something that was also written um, on both sides, something that I should have probably known? It's in the book of Exodus, and that would be the tables of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain, the Ten Commandments. Uh, the Ten Commandments were actually written on both sides of both of the rocks. And I don't know, I just always pictured, you know, you've got carving on one side, carving on another, that's it. Well, Exodus actually tells us that it was carved on both sides of those rocks. It was just a reminder to me, I need to read more carefully. Uh, but the point is that, that uh, this is something that's full, it's, it's complete, it's, all the writing is there, all right? There's this unique scroll, and it's written within, and it's written on the back. And this scroll is sealed up. It says it's sealed with seven seals, all right? Uh, the seal would have been a stamp usually made out of wax, and it would have been put, put on something that was official, and only, only certain people had the power to break these designated seals. They would use them on contracts. They would use them on wills. Um, and so there was something that could not be broken except by the person that had the power and the authority to do that. Um, this one is sealed with, with seven seals. Well, we're going to... What you would find out if you continue to read the book of Revelation uh, is that when you get to chapter number six and this scroll is open, when these seals um, begin to be broken, then judgment begins to be unleashed on earth. Um, these, uh, this scroll contains the book of the judgment, the tribulation that comes from God. All right? some, t- some people have called this the scroll of doom because when it's opened, when Christ begins to open it seal by seal, then wrath is poured out on earth. All right. Again, this is no ordinary scroll. What is it? Well, this scroll contains the next step for God's redemptive historical plans. Right. This scroll is for the progress of God's plans. It's the progress of his kingdom plans. Uh, all that has been foreshadowed in the Old Testament, it's wrapped up in this scroll. This scroll needs to be opened so that we can get on with God's timetable. And you'll see that in chapter number six of Revelation and throughout. This scroll is essential to God's plans being worked out. What, what we'll find out is that the contents of the scroll are acted on, not read, all right? They're not, they're not to be read, they're to be acted out. And so eventually when we get to the point when the lamb opens the seals, it's not to show what's inside the scroll, but to initiate the plan that's there, all right? This is an, an important scroll. I thought this quote was really helpful. Uh, the purging effect of God's wrath will touch the entire sphere of God's creation. The effects of sin will disappear and earth will be restored to its rightful owner, the consequences of the scroll's contents are immeasurable and eternal, right? What we're trying to say is this scroll is important. It's crucially important. But there is a major problem with this scroll. It's sealed, and we get to verse number two, and it says, I saw a strong angel. The strong angel isn't named. We don't know exactly who this angel is, but this angel is proclaiming with a loud voice. He's shouting, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? 
All right, so heavenly throne room, God is there. He's got a scroll. The scroll contains the next step of his redemptive plans of, of carrying out his plans for human history, and, and it's sealed up, and there's an angel saying, who can open this thing? Who can do it? Verse number three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll. There's this comprehensive search, as it were. There's not, there's not anybody in heaven who can open this thing. There's not somebody on earth. There's not even somebody under the earth. It's, a, it's kind of a figurative way of saying there isn't, there isn't anyone anywhere. There's no chance that somebody is opening the scroll. It's bound up. And so, not only are they not able to open the scroll, they're not even able to look into it. This thing is shut, all right? It's, it's completely shut. We can't even see what's inside it. And because of that, verse number four, John begins to weep loudly. I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. All right? So now you got this heavenly scene. There's God. There's a scroll. It's a crucial scroll. And you got the apostle John, and he's crying. All right? And, and he's, not just, he's not just crying a few tears. All right? The word for weep is already a word for, for weeping loudly. Uh, but on top of that, you also have the word um, loudly. So it's already a weep is already a word for wailing. And then you add loudly. So basically John is just melting down in heaven. He's, he is wailing loudly because nobody can open this thing. He's not just crying a little bit. He's, it's, he's full blown mourning. There is nobody who can open this thing. All right. Um, we don't, we don't often in our Bibles. In fact, we next to never see tears in heaven. Uh, this is one of those times where you have somebody in heaven and there's just wailing. There's mourning. All right. And one of the elders comes to John, verse number five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Uh, Stop weeping. John says, there's no one who is worthy. There's no one who is sufficient or or fit. There's no one who has the credentials to open this thing. And so I'm going to wail. And and this elder comes to him and says, you don't need to weep anymore. Now, people have taken a lot of guesses of why it is that John is weeping. Uh, Some have said he's just really curious about what's inside the scroll and nobody can open it. I think he's a little more concerned. He's more than just curiosity. That's not what's driving him to weep and wail this loudly. Um, I, I think John has to have at least some sense that what is inside this scroll is crucial to the outworking of God's plan. He, he must have some comprehension that this thing is important. And it's not trivial. It's not minor. Uh, this is something that he cares about, and he cares about so much he's going to wail if nobody can open it. He has some sense that this has to do with God's ongoing plans. And I think the best answer of why John is wailing is because he has an understanding. This is crucial to God's redemptive ongoing plans. And I desperately want somebody to be able to open it. He's not just curious. He's not just bummed because he doesn't know it's there. Uh, he wants God's plans to work out. And so he's weeping. But one of the elders comes to him and says, weep no more. Stop your weeping. You don't need to do this. And here's why. All right. And now we're getting into uh, the worth of Jesus Christ is going to be is going to be put on display, and the setup is really going to describe the worth of Jesus Christ. He says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The elder says there is somebody who's worthy to open this, and he he uses these descriptions. He calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Um, all the way back in the book of Genesis, as Jacob was giving his blessing uh, to his children, he referred to Judah and Judah's children um, with terms of lions, either cubs of lions or lions that would come. And really, Jesus Christ, as a, as a, as a, descendant, a descendant, he stands um, as, as the ultimate son that comes from this line. He is, he is the lion of all lions. 
He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It says he is the root of David. All right, the root of David. Uh, that, that doesn't mean he's the, the root that David came from. It means he's, he's the root who comes from David. All right, he is, he is the root of David. This, that, that terminology, along with lion of the tribe of Judah, these are messianic claims. All right, these are messianic claims of Christ. Um, Isaiah chapter number 11, verses 1 through 3. You may be familiar with these words. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. This is a description of the Messiah as the root of David. And the elder says, you're... you're the root of David, he's the one who's capable of opening the scroll, right? He's the one who is worthy, the one who comes from Judah, the one who is the root of David. Because of his, his pedigree, he is worthy. But it's, it's not just his pedigree that makes him worthy. Look, it says that this lion, the root of David, he has conquered, right? He has already done something that makes him worthy to open the scroll. And what he's done is he has conquered. And, and that conquering was for a purpose, what was the purpose of this lion, of this root of David? What was the purpose of him conquering? Well, it tells us at the end of the verse, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the purpose of Christ's conquering. And I think in that conquering, we're, we're talking overcoming language, talking about overcoming sin and overcoming Satan, right? This conquering was for a purpose. And that purpose was so that Jesus Christ could be all in all, so that he could have all authority, so that he could be the one who is worthy to, to make God's kingdom plans continue to progress, right? He is worthy because he has overcome. He's come from David, he's come from Judah, and because of his overcoming, he is worthy to take this scroll, right? This is the worth of Jesus Christ, and it's being described for us. Get to verse number six, and the scene changes a bit, um, we're surprised, I think, uh, we've been reading about the lion, we've been reading about the root. You get to verse number six, and we're surprised to see this about Jesus Christ, because this is what John sees next. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw what? I saw a lamb. All right. John, John goes from saying he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he says what I saw in this heavenly picture, in this vision that I have, what I saw was a lamb. This is surprising. This is, this is unexpected, right? This is a lamb standing, but what else is unusual about this lamb? This lamb is standing as though it had been slain, right? What John sees is a slaughtered lamb. But that slaughtered lamb isn't, isn't lying on the ground in a pool of blood. It's standing. This is who John sees. This is a word picture. Again, it's pointing us, at using the language of lamb, it's reminding us, even of, of what we have read recently, even from the book of Isaiah, about Christ as the Lamb. Right? This is bringing Old Testament um, pictures to our minds to say Jesus is that sacrificial Lamb. Uh, Jesus is only referred to as a Lamb four times and in the rest of the New Testament. John calls him a Lamb 31 times just in the book of Revelation. All right? this is, John loves this description of Christ as the Lamb. He's meek. He is the substitute. He is the sacrifice. And that's who John sees. You, you, we look for a lion, and what we see is a sacrificed lamb. Tells us a lot about our Christ. And he's standing there as though he had been slain, and yet he has seven horns and seven eyes. All right? Now, I don't know if you have a good imagination or not, um, but if you're imagining a lamb, 
and, and now you're imagining that it's been slaughtered, but it's still standing there. Or you, your imagination might already be pressed beyond the limit. Uh, but on top of that, this lamb has seven horns. All right? I have never seen a lamb uh, with more than two horns myself. I don't know if you have, but uh, four. You've seen four. All right, thank you. All right, so there are some of you have seen a lamb with four horns. Uh, this one has seven. What's, what's the deal with these seven horns? Well, it is common in prophetic language to... Uh, to use horns as symbols of strength, all right? And, and we're straight out told that. It's not just, uh, not just making that up, but even the book of Daniel refers to horns as, as strength, all right? So this lamb, when it talks about seven horns, we're talking about something that is powerful, all right? That's the point of seven horns. And it says he has seven eyes. Great thing about this is we don't have to wonder what does that mean because it tells us. And this is a breath of fresh air every time it happens in Revelation. When, when we hear something, we're trying to figure out, and then he tells us what it is, all right? So he says these seven eyes are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I don't know if that just clears it all up for you or not. Uh, but the, the point here is he's got seven horns. This is, this is, he's powerful. This is a powerful lamb. And then there are these seven eyes. What they're representative of is, is really omniscience and omnipresence of, of the Holy Spirit. All right? We don't need to rethink the Trinity and say, well, if there's seven spirits, and then we add more persons of Godhead, we're up to like nine. This is just a way of describing the fullness of the Spirit. All right, so we say seven spirits, and John has already used this earlier in the book of Revelation. It's the fullness of the Spirit, um, which I think is a direct connection to what we already read from Isaiah, which is that the Spirit of the Lord rests on this one who is the Messiah. All right, this lamb is directly identified as the Messiah um, because of his power and because of the fullness of the Spirit that he has. Okay? What we're seeing is we're seeing Jesus Christ. And what he does in verse number seven is he goes and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. Say, how does a lamb go and take a scroll? All right. Well, remember where we are, right? We're in in Revelation. There, There are word pictures that are being used that point us to realities. All right. But the reality is Jesus Christ. All right. And and the word pictures of a slaughtered lamb with all of these horns and all these eyes are pointing us to a person, all right? A person who's fully capable of walking to the throne and taking the scroll, all right? He goes and he takes the scroll, and something happens as soon as he takes the scroll. And what happens next is a song that will declare the worth of Jesus Christ. So there's a scene uh, that is going to describe for us his worth. There's a song that's going to declare it, and we see that beginning to happen in verse number 8. When he had taken the scroll, so he takes it out of the hands God the Father. It says, The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They fell down in worship. Each one was holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. There are these creatures that surround God in this heavenly scene who John has already um, introduced earlier in this book. Um, You've got these living creatures, angelic beings. You have these 24 elders who are gathered around the throne constantly praising God. And, and what happens as the lamb goes and he, and he takes, this, takes this scroll is they fall down in worship. It says each one is holding a harp, right? Again, it is just easy for me to think in my cultural terms. So when I read harp, I think of what I think of as a harp. It's nice golden. It's got a nice arch on the top, and uh, it's a harp. Well, uh, I think it's probably better to think in Jewish terms. Uh, that's probably a lot more accurate. Uh, a harp would have been more like a rectangle, all right? So if that destroys your image of a harp, I'm really sorry. Uh, it's got eight to ten strings on it, probably, all right? It's probably in a rectangle or maybe a trapezoid. But they've got this, they've got this harp, and, and they also have golden bowls that are full of incense, all right? You have these golden bowls. Uh, this, is a, this is an image of worship that's going on in heaven. And again, John's going to help us by telling us what exactly he's talking about. Um, this incense is, says, which are the prayers of the saints, all right. The, the, the picture here is that these elders, 
um, are, are singing, bringing musical praise to God, and they're also um, bringing prayer, all right? So the prayers of the saints are represented as being in God's presence, all right? That's what's going on here. So you have the scene of worship, and what happens is uh, that these elders sing, it says, a new song in verse number 9. This is an ex- a song of excellence. This is a song of redemption. That's frequently what the Bible means. When it says a new song, we're talking about a song of redemption, all right? And they do it well. And this is what they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a song that we get a sneak peek at a song from heaven, and this song declares the worth of Jesus Christ. And so I, I want to break this down a little bit to, and just meditate with you on, on what this song is. Because this song is going to tell us that Christ's worth is based on something, all right? Christ's worthiness to take the scroll is based on something. What is it? it? First it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it. So no one else in heaven or on earth is worthy of this privilege, this authority, this power. No one else is worthy to do this, only Christ. Remember this opening, the scroll is not just to see what's inside it, but it's actually to make these plans work out. So, so when these when these Um, worshipers announce that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. They're saying Jesus is worthy to work out the ongoing part of redemption. He's, he is, he is the one who is fit to declare the ongoing purposes of God and to make them happen. All right. Jesus is the only one. No human can open the scroll and make what's inside it happen. But Christ can. They say you are worthy. You are fit. You are authoritative to take the scroll and to open its seals. But why is it? And this is, this is crucial for us to see the worth of Jesus Christ. What makes Christ worthy of working out God's redemptive plans? What is it that, that make us say that Jesus Christ, who we have been studying about his passion, we've considered him in the garden, we're, we're considering his humanity right now as we work through Matthew. What is it that makes him worthy of this kind of worship? What is it that makes Christ the one that we say he is, he is worth the power and authority to work out all of God's plans? What makes him worth it? For you were slain. For you were slain. I think those words need to sink into our hearts and into our minds. Christ is worth the worship. He deserves the worship of every created being because he was slain. It is the death of Jesus Christ that makes him worth the worship of all of humanity. And not only of humanity, but all of creation of every created order, of every angel, Christ is worth this kind of worship and this kind of authority because he was slain. The the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross that we are even moving towards in Matthew, um, that cross that we are making progress to, that cross sets Christ apart as worth the worship of nations. I think it's, it's amazing to me. It is, it is the grace of God to us that this is what makes Christ worth the worship. It, it's, this focuses his worth and his cross work. It says, because you were slain. The cross of Jesus Christ lies at the heart of his value and of his worth. What happened when he was slain? Several things happened that this song goes on to describe, that, that, will, that will tell us about the worth of Jesus Christ. When he was slain, what happened? By your blood, you ransomed people for God. Right? With his blood, he ransomed people. He paid for people. Jesus paid 
the, father, the, the price the father demanded. The ransom was paid to God for people with his very own blood. The payment that God expected, the payment that God required was the blood of a perfect substitute, and Christ provided that. With his very own blood, with human blood, he ransomed people, and he did it for God. Where do these people come from? This is, this is good news for all of us this morning because it doesn't say you ransom people for God from the Jewish nation. It doesn't say you ransom people for God from any one particular ethnicity. What does it say? You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that is good news for us as Gentile people because we are people who are far from the promise of God. We are strangers to his covenants. We are, we, are, we are far from him, even in our ethnicity. And yet the plan of God was for Christ to be slain and for that blood to ransom people from every tribe, talking about ethnic groups, every language. So every kind of language group that there is in the world, every people, it's a really broad word for, for just humanity, and every nation, that's talking about like a political, just like we think of as a nation, any political grouping. Right? Those are all people that Christ has ransomed. Right? That makes him worthy of worship and authority. He ransomed people for God from every tribe, from every language, from every people, and from every nation. And the remarkable thing is that, is that this, this salvation that is avail- available across humanity has always been the plan of God. Right? There is a lot that was veiled in the Old Testament about God's plan to include the Gentiles. And yet this has always been, this has always been part of the fabric uh, of God's plan for the nations. Remember promises to Abraham? Part of the promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to whom? To the nations. All right? God has always been concerned about people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. Uh, I was reading just the other day in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah points us to God's desire to bring in people from all ethnicities. Even in the Old Testament, this is, this is his desire. Um, listen to these incredible words from Isaiah 19, verse 24. Think about this as a Jewish person would have heard these words. All right, so Try to think of yourself in Jewish terms. This is what Isaiah says. In that day, speaking of the coming day of restoration, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. All right? Does that, does that, do those verses strike you? Do, you? do you get how shocking that would be to a Jewish audience? We're going to call Egypt the people of God? I, I mean, you guys know about Egypt, right? I mean, you know about the years of slavery in Egypt. You know about Pharaoh trying to chase the people down once they're released. Egypt is no friend to Israel. Egypt had been no friend to God. Going down to Egypt was synonymous with wandering off into, into sin, into disaster. Uh, Egypt is not good in Jewish terms. All right? What about Assyria? Well, you guys know how Jonah felt when God told him that he needed to go be a blessing to the Assyrians. You remember that the Assyrians were the ones who came in and, and took captive hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who, who wiped out their nation from a historical standpoint. Uh, the Assyrians are no friends to the Jewish people. And yet what Isaiah promised is there is a day when Egypt will be called the people of God and Assyria will be the work of his hands along with Israel, my inheritance. To put, to put these enemy nations on any par with Israel, to the Jewish mind is unfathomable. And to, to the mind that has the gospel, 
bearing on it, we see the blessing of grace, even in Isaiah, um, because we fit in this category of outside of Israel. And that's not the only time that, that we see God's plan for nations outside of Israel to be blessed in the book of Isaiah. We read some from Isaiah 53 last week, and I just want to remind you of what happens in the book of Acts. Um, Acts chapter number 8, verses 27 to 35, it's the account of, of Philip, and he goes and he's evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch. You recall the story, right? Philip's, Philip's preaching, lots and lots of people are responding to his preaching, but the Holy Spirit takes him away from this populated place and takes him in the middle of the desert, takes him to the wilderness, and he goes out there, and the only person that's there is this Ethiopian, and he's riding in his chariot, He's returning from Jerusalem, and he's reading. And he's reading from Isaiah. And so the Spirit tells Philip, I want you to go over and join this chariot. And so Philip runs over. He hears him reading from Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I understand this unless somebody guides me, unless somebody helps me? And so he invites Philip to come up, sit with him. Verse number 32, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so the Ethiopian says to Philip, who's, who's the prophet talking about? And here, verse 35, because this is, this is great. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him what? He told him the good news about Jesus. Philip told the Ethiopian the gospel from the book of Isaiah. Gospel, good news. It's about Jesus. Isaiah wasn't talking about himself as a substitute. He was talking about Christ. You know what we we see from this encounter? What we see is Isaiah 53, it it was the gospel for Ethiopians. It was good news, not just for Jewish people, but for people from every ethnicity. It's it's good news for us who are outside of Israel. Isaiah 53 is about Christ. And that's for all of us, because with his blood, he ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And that has always been his intent. Christ's plan has been to redeem for himself all of humanity, people from every walk of life, people from every ethnicity. This is the plan of Christ. This makes him worthy of worship and authority and adoration. So with his blood, he ransomed people people from every ethnicity, from every group. Not only that, verse number 10 goes on to say, he not only ransomed them, but he made them a kingdom and priests to our God. This is part of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, of what he accomplishes on the cross. He makes people a kingdom, right? We've been talking a lot about the kingdom of God because we've been in the book of Matthew, right? The kingdom of God is certainly, uh, it certainly includes a physical location, certainly includes a land. It certainly includes Christ physically present. But the inescapable reality of this verse is that the kingdom of Christ involves a people. And the kingdom is a people. All right? The kingdom of Jesus Christ is a people. It's a people group. It's people from every walk of life. He made people into a kingdom. People are Christ's kingdom. John has already brought this up earlier in Revelation, Revelation 1. He says this, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Right? This is what the blood of Jesus Christ has done. It has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. The blood of Jesus Christ makes us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It also makes us priest to God. It's a theme that Peter echoes uh, when he says that we ourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. It's part of God's intent in ransoming us is to make us, to turn us into priests to God. It goes on in verse number 9, and he says this to us, not just to Jewish people, to us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now listen to this. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is what the work of Christ on the cross does for you. It ransoms you by his blood. It ransoms you for God, and it makes you a kingdom. It makes you a priest who is fit to serve God. It, it gives this to you. It's Christ making you fit for this. This means that our Christ is worth our worship because of what he has done. He's made a people to be kingdom and priest. And in the future, the end of verse 10, they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. That's looking forward. I think it's looking forward into the millennial kingdom, saying there is a day coming when we will reign. This too has been a promise of God, even from the Old Testament time. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, which is a chapter that has a lot of connections to Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this from Daniel 7, verse number 27. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. This is part of Christ's redemptive work to make us fit a fit kingdom, fit priest, and the ability to reign here on earth, right? This is the work of Christ, and it's in this song, and it's this, and it's this song that shows us that Christ is worth our worship. Let's finish with one, with one main point today. Um, there's going to be a scene that is also going to demonstrate the worth of Jesus Christ. He deserves the worship of, of every created being, and it, and it is because of what is contained in this song, because of he was slain, because of his blood, because of his ransom, because he's made us a kingdom and priest. And now there's a heavenly reaction. And I, I hope there's an earthly reaction even this morning when, when you hear these truths. But in the heavenly scene, there is a reaction to this song. Verse number 11, John says, Then I looked. That's frequently used in the book of Revelation. Uh, he's moving on to the next thing that he sees, or he's telling you I, something else is going to happen. That's kind of like saying, and then the next thing was, So then I looked, and I heard around the throne. All right, you like that? I looked. So when John looked, what happened was he heard. All right, so I looked, and what happened was I heard around the throne and around the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels. This is the response to this song that is sung. There are many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. They say that word myriads is the largest unit of measurement that they had in their day. Um, it would be like the 10,000s. There wasn't any kind of larger number. There wasn't any bigger way that he could have said, there's just this innumerable host. Right? He's, not, he's not going 1,000, one, 2,000. He's not actually counting the thousands. He's saying, there's no way I'm counting all these, all these angels. There's literally thousands of them uh, beyond what we can count. And they say with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain. You see, Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every created being, including these angels. They announce he is worthy because he has been slain. Right? I think it's helpful for us to notice that it doesn't say that, that they sing. Uh, in fact, uh, little, known, little known reality, uh, angels are never said to sing in our Bibles. Did you know that? Um, it's always a word that's used for shouting or announcing loudly. Um, we might infer that there is singing going on, but the word that's actually used here, as in everywhere else, is a word for verbal speech, and it's, and it's speaking in unison. Notice it says, they say with a loud voice, all right? This is a cry, uh, a verbal cry that is in unison. They say it together. They shout is the idea. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And this is for our hearts to agree with today. Um, worthy is the lamb who was slain. What is he worthy of? He's worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We don't have time to detail every single one of these um, one of these realities, but but these angels announce they verbally announce that he is worth receiving. He is worth these things being attributed to him. He's worth us recognizing these things about him. He is he is worth power. All right, our Jesus Christ. He's he's worth all all power or authority and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those are things that we should attribute to Jesus Christ. And these angels do it in this heavenly scene. They're not the only ones who react, though. Verse number 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. Do you see that again? Heaven, earth, under the sea. Just like there was nobody found who could open the scroll, heaven, earth, under the sea. Now every creature, heaven, earth, under the sea, now every creature responds in praise and worship because Jesus deserves this praise. And in heaven, he will get it because all is right in this scene. And what happens is every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all is in them, they say to him who sits on the throne, that would be God the Father, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory, and might forever and ever. And what we're witnessing here is, is a heavenly worship moment. We are, worshiping, we, are, we are getting to see the worship of Jesus Christ that, that happens in heaven, in his very presence. We, we get a glimpse, we get a sneak peek because of what was revealed to John. And what he sees is, is that Jesus Christ is worth every single creature that exists praising him saying that he is worth blessing and honor and glory and might, and not just for a little bit of time, but forever and ever. And the four living creatures give their agreement to this worship by simply saying, amen, this is true, this is right. And it says the elders fell down and worshiped. The worship of Jesus Christ, the recognition of his worth and of his greatness is directly connected to his death on the cross. Why is Jesus Christ worth all of this attention? Why is he worth this honor, this adoration? What makes him so worthy? What makes him worthy is that he is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David, and he has conquered. He has shed his own blood for people from every nation. And so he is worth this kind of adoration and praise. He is the only one who is worth opening up these seals, and, and unleashing God's wrath and furthering God's redemptive plans in history. Christ has that kind of power. He has that kind of ability, and it is his and his alone. This, this heavenly scene of worship 
it, it needs to have an effect on us today. And, and it does if we'll just stop and, and let these things sink in. So, so let me ask you a few questions as you think about, so what that this scene is in heaven? So what that this will happen one day? Well, John isn't just telling us this so that we'll know the kind of worship Jesus will get one day. Right? He's telling us this because this needs to change how we think right now. Because when we get to see this picture of a future worship, we're reminded that Jesus deserves this kind of worship now. Jesus deserves the worship of every creature, and he's going to get it. So let's let what is future inform how we live today. Let me ask you a question. First of all, have you recognized the worth of Jesus Christ? Have you actually recognized that Jesus is worth this kind of worship? Uh, are, Are you confident that his blood has actually paid for your sins? Because if you, have, if you have never bowed your knee to the gospel, if you have never agreed that the good news is that you cannot save yourself, but only Christ can, then you will never see the worth of Jesus Christ on display. He, Jesus Christ is precious to those who trust him fully and completely for their salvation. And we are desperately concerned that there are those who may be familiar with Jesus Christ. You might be here and you've been around the Bible a long time. But if you have never bowed your knee to Jesus Christ, and if you have never said the gospel is true and I must believe it, if you have never had new life in your heart that says, I, I, I must believe this and I must worship him as the worthy one, uh, then, then this scene of worship will never be a, a reality for you. But rather, the worship that you can expect is one day when you are forced to bow because one day every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But today is your opportunity to bow now. Now is the day of salvation. So if if you have not turned to Christ as your substitute, as your lamb, then I urge you that, that now is the time for salvation. But I, I assume uh, that so many of you, the vast majority, are those who have already said, I see the worth of Jesus Christ. He has convinced me. Uh, I believe the gospel. Um, so, so what about this passage for you? Um, what about for me? What does this passage do to us when we say, why do I need to see the worth of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm concerned that it is easy for me, and even the last couple of weeks, considering the passion of Jesus Christ, it is painfully easy for me to underestimate the value of Jesus Christ. It is painfully easy to minimize what was happening at the cross. It, it, is, it is so easy to do that, not, not by intention, not in any mean spirit, but, but through apathy and failing to consider the worth of Jesus Christ. And it has a myriad of applications that touches our lives in so many different ways. Because this scene might be a little bit foreign to our imaginations, like there might be from an imagination standpoint, you might say this is a little bit foreign. But what's happening in this passage ought not be foreign to our hearts. Our hearts ought to go, yes, this is the worship that, that I desire to bring now. I long for Christ to receive this kind of worship one day. This is what I want to happen. I want Jesus to be recognized as worthy. So let me ask you, why do you evangelize? Why do you give people the gospel? What is it that drives you to share your faith? What is it that drives you to share the good news? 
I think this morning, if anything other than the worth of Jesus Christ is what is driving us to evangelism, then we will always be frustrated and guilty whenever someone brings up evangelism. Because the worth of Jesus Christ is the theological bedrock for everything we do with sharing the gospel. All right? Let me read you this quote. It's a little bit extended, but um, the, the principle here is one that has forever changed how I look at missions and I think should change all of us. Uh, it's from John Piper. I want you to hear this, please. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So what, what drives us to take the gospel to people that don't believe it? What drives us is that we long for Jesus to receive the worship that's due. We long for people to recognize his worth. So if we, if we ground our, our desire to evangelize in, I'm going to feel guilty if I don't, our evangelism will always, will always falter. If we ground our evangelism in, um, I just want the best for people, I think our evangelism will, will falter. Because ultimately, missions and evangelism exist for the glory of God. It exists so that Christ be seen as great and glorious. So this perspective of Christ as the worthy one, it drives us in, in a way that nothing else can when it comes to communicating the gospel. Further, how should we view the nations? Do we have heaven's perspective on wanting the nations to worship Jesus? So it is clearly the plan of Christ, and it has clearly been the plan of God from the beginning, that people from, um, from every nation— from every people, from every ethnicity, that they all become ransomed and redeemed ones. So is that a heartbeat that you and I share? Do we share God's desire for people from, from every ethnicity to worship before him? Because if we do, that's going to be lived out. It's going to be reflected in our lives in, in several different ways. Let me give you some suggestions. If, if we care that, that Christ be worshipped by people from every nation, if we agree that he deserves the worship of people from every nation— then we will be people who pray globally, all right? We'll be global prayers because we're not just concerned about the worship of Christ um, in our own families, in our own church, in our own community. We're concerned about the worship of Christ globally. We'll be global prayers. I think if, if we care that Christ be worshiped by the nations, we'll be global givers, all right? We'll be global givers. We'll use our money to further gospel work all across the world. Uh, we, just had our, we just had our member meal and meeting uh, last week. One of the things that, that we gave out there was a philosophy statement on global missions as well as local missions. You can get that on our website. Uh, anyone is free to, to look at that. Um, we also announced that we have added Shannon Hurley as, as a new missionary um, to, our, to our church family. Um, why have we done that? Why, why, at the beginning of this year, did the pastoral team say, um, we need to seriously think about how we budget um, we need to see if we can cut back in any ways so that we can provide more money for missions. Why do, why do you do that? Well, you do that because people that are convinced that Jesus deserves worship care that the gospel go out in the world, all right? And I am so grateful that so many of you, uh, you give when it comes to finances. You give generously. 
Um, I, you do it here. I know that many of you are supporting those who are taking the mission across the world personally. And I'm so excited about that because what that means is that you value the worship of Jesus Christ globally. It means that you think he is worthy of worship, not just by us, but by, by all of humanity. All right? These things happen because we're convinced that he deserves the worship of every, of every being. Jesus deserves the worship of all the nations of the world. So we'll be global prayers, we'll be global givers, um, and we'll be going globally. All right? Uh, I, I, I think we should not be surprised, and in fact, we ought to be praying that God will send people out of Grace Church uh, to take the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere. Um, we need to pray that God would, would raise up and send out what we would call missionaries from here. Um, we need to pray that God would give us wisdom and creativity as we pursue short-term scenarios. Not everybody can move their families to uh, a, a new part of the world, um, but there are short-term opportunities that we can pursue. Why do we do that? Why would we spend resources and energy and time thinking about short-term opportunities and trying to pursue them? Well, because we think that Christ deserves the worship of every person, of every people group. He deserves it, right? But it's not just this perspective of Jesus is not just going to affect how we look globally it's going to radically transform how we look locally, all right? Your perspective of your neighbor who doesn't know the gospel has to be informed by the reality that Jesus deserves the worship of the nations. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter if uh, your neighbor is of the same nationality as you or if they're not. They're somebody who, who God's design is for them to become worshipers, and, and if they don't bow their knee to the gospel, then they are not actively worshiping Jesus Christ as the crucified lamb. And our heart is, because of what we see in Revelation, that's what I want. Uh, this, this drives our perspective. What is behind even recent comments about, um, about how, we, how we need to care about how Grace Church takes the gospel to the Hispanic community that's all around us? Um, why does that keep getting mentioned? Why do we keep talking about it? Why are we praying about it? Why are we strategizing? Why are, why are we doing these things? Well, because... The worship of Jesus Christ doesn't exist in our unsaved neighbors and friends. And God has put us in this valley, not in lots of other scenarios. He's put us in this one. And what we have are golden opportunities for the gospel. You have them with people who are like you. You have, people, you have it with people who are not like you. You have it with people with your own ethnicity and with different ones. Why would we not take these opportunities? Why would we not be praying and working for these things if we think that Christ deserves the worship of every people? This informs how we look, even about our outreach to the Hispanic community. Because Jesus is worth the worship, not just of one ethnicity or people group, but of all of humanity. Right? The worship of Jesus Christ is not just for people who are like me, in whatever way you think of that. Uh, the worship of Jesus Christ is for all of humanity. And so if we're going to be a church who's committed to the worship of Jesus Christ, we're going to be committed to the gospel going to our entire community. And so... Do I value the worship of Jesus to actively spread the gospel in my community? Is there actually feet to this saying, yes, Jesus is valuable. Yes, he's worthy. And that's going to that's gonna lead itself to missions, not because missions is ultimate, but because worship is. Last thing for you to consider today. Do I meditate on the worth of Jesus to motivate my actions? Do, do I think about Christ's worth? Is that what it is that's driving me to act? Because what we see in this scene in Revelation is, is clear recognition of Jesus' worth. And when Jesus is clearly recognized for who he is, 
then, then it is inescapable, the worship that naturally happens, all right? Nobody's, nobody's here in heaven saying, okay, now angels, you should start shouting loudly um, praise, and, and elders, now you should bow down and cast their crowns. It is, the, it is the natural expected repercussion from seeing Christ for who he is, all right? So do you meditate on the worth of Jesus to drive your actions, your actions of worship, your actions of service, your actions of evangelism? Is it the worth of Jesus Christ that's driving you today? Because if, if it is, we will have limitless motivation and incentive for doing gospel work because there is no limit or value to the, to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ deserves the worship of every created being, and he will have it. So let's join his purpose. Let's join his purpose to, to see people from every nation come to him. Let's join his purpose to, to have a kingdom and to have priests. Let's join it as people who personally obey and agree and as those who long for others to join this great kingdom and this people. Okay, let's all pray together. Father, you are great and your son is worthy. He is worthy of the worship of all of humanity. He alone is is worth. He is of value greater than any that we could possibly imagine. He alone has the authority to work out your redemptive plans. And they all culminate in bringing glory to you. And so I pray that you would please give us grace as a church to value Jesus rightly, even, in, even from this message in the coming days as we can continue to consider the passion of Jesus Christ, help us to grasp his value and his worth and help us to respond in worship because he was slain. Help us to be a church that does not just look inward, but, but actively, aggressively desires that the worship of Jesus Christ expand beyond our church family. We need your help for this. We need your help to overcome our guilt to overcome our fear, to overcome our apathy. We need your help. And we pray for it because we value the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name, believing this is in keeping with his desires. Amen.